Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. All right, it's good to be here this morning. Good to be with the saints of God. God is good. Uh, Christopher got up and I, I got nervous. I thought he's going to preach my message. It, uh, he often does that. Steals my material. My little brother, you know. How many of you knew that that bald-headed guy was my brother? Raise your hand. How many of you thought maybe he was my son? All right, yeah, just Christopher. Yeah, when, when Christopher was on staff, people would really think he was my son. I'm like, he's like six years younger than me, and he looks older, you know? So anyway, okay, I digress. All right, I felt the anointing lift when I said that. I don't want to touch God's anointing. Okay, this morning we are, it, this is uh, Thanksgiving week, and uh, as Christopher was saying, this, it's, not, it's not just a, a week that we do it, but what a wonderful nation we have that we honor Thanksgiving, that concept of being grateful. And so I want to look this morning, if, if we can get there, uh, where I want to land this morning is I want to look at gratitude as an act of spiritual warfare, as an act of defiance against hell, that it's a way that we take a stand and actually attract heaven and literally get traction for heaven on earth through our gratitude. Before we can get there, though, we've got to lay some groundwork. And so I've got six points this morning. Uh, yeah, it's been a while I got to preach, so uh, really I did just look through my notes, and I usually don't preach with notes, uh, but this is some some fresh thoughts I've been just chewing on, so I wrote some things out, and uh, then I numbered them, so it looks like there's about six points, we'll see if we can move through them, have some logic to it, so we're going to need the Lord this morning, let's pray. Father, I ask God for your anointing. Lord, that you would speak to us. And Father, I'm asking that you would connect the dots for us, provoke our thoughts this morning towards you. And Lord, I'm asking that you would root and ground us in gratitude. Lord, that we would see the value of this, this posture inside our hearts. And Lord, that we would recognize it for the weapon that it is. And Lord, that it's the natural outflow of a revelation of you. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to read through some things and make some comments, okay? That's not usually my normal MO, but that's what we're going to do this morning. This is, this is what I was thinking about, about 4.30 this morning. The, foundation, the foundational thought of heaven is God is good. The foundational thought of hell is God cannot be trusted. And that really is the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of hell. And where you fall on that stance will determine what you invite into your life. The, the fruit that you will produce, the fruit that you will attract is all dependent upon the stand you take in your heart. In fact, these two concepts are actually the, the thresholds of their respective worlds. It just may be that over the doorpost of heaven is carved in stone this glorious truth. God is good. Amen. While over the threshold of hell is scratched the damning phrase, God cannot be trusted. These are not mere thoughts. These are mindsets. Lenses through which we evaluate our, and live our lives. 
So you need to ask yourself this morning, what is the, the posture of your heart? How do you really evaluate life and the circumstances around you? I'm not talking about in the comfort of a church where we're sitting in our, our comfortable chairs this morning. I'm talking about when life seems to contradict what the Bible says about God. The stand you take in your heart posture in that moment is really the truest thing about you and actually the most important thing about you. A.W. Tozer in his, his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, I'd really recommend you get a hold of that book. Just the, it's either the foreword or the first chapter is worth the price of the book. But in there he says this. He says the most important thing about you is your answer to the question, what is God like? And he said, if I were to ascertain your answer to that question, I could determine your future destiny. He said, if I could ascertain the corporate answer of the church in this hour, I could determine where the church will be in a decade or two. It all comes down to our opinion of God. You know, God has made this whole thing called salvation contingent upon our faith. And then he even tells us to gather as the saints and worship him. Now, I don't know about you, but as a young Christian, I really wrestled with that. And I was afraid to say it, but I, this is what I was thinking. I thought, Lord, that's a little small of you. To boil this whole thing down about this, this thing of my faith, that I enter eternal life through faith or I'm kept out through unbelief, and then you demand that I worship you. And I found that God is very secure in his identity. He doesn't shy away from those questions. He's not, he's not afraid or he isn't offended when we ask those questions. Because behind the answer to those questions are some real revelations. The fact is the reason God takes your faith personal, and he does. Think, Lord, why do you take that so personal? Because it is. Your statement about God is your personal evaluation of his character. Your faith is a declaration of his great faithfulness, of the integrity of his character. And that's why the foundational thought of heaven is God is good. And the foundational thought of hell is God can't be trusted. All of sin entered the world through that one question of God's character. Did God really say, and the reason he said it is because he's trying to keep the God stuff, the good stuff from you. And when we swallow that lie, we literally attract hell and we produce hell around us. So those two things are not just thoughts. They, are, they become mindsets out of which our entire life emanates. And it determines what we attract in our life. And so do you really believe that God is good? That's the question. Everyone has a theology. You can't help it. I was reading just this morning. I, I, I'd heard this story, so I looked it up this morning. Helen Keller. You, uh, most of you know who Helen Keller was. At, at two years old, she became a deaf, blind mute. She was totally out of touch with the outside world. And when they were finally able to communicate with her, I, th I believe it was Ann Sullivan that reached her. And uh, there's been different movies made about it that she, she literally would tackle her and hold her and, and teach her, manipulate her fingers to uh, begin to communicate with her. And as she began to reach into this isolated mind, she began to talk with her and she tried to talk to her about God, but she felt like she, was, she wasn't able to really communicate. So she asked the famous pastor, Alfred, Al, I believe it was Alfred, 
Albert Brooks, uh, the famous preacher of the time, and he sat the little girl on his knee and began to tell her about God. And her response was, oh, I already knew him. I just didn't know his name. It's an amazing thing that a blind, deaf, mute that had no contact with the outside world except for feeling, and she would just stumble her way and enrages and, and throw food and just lashing out at those around her, yet she said, I already knew God. She, she said, I didn't have a name for him, and he didn't have a name for me, but I knew he loved me. Is that an amazing thing or what? The fact is, all of us have a theology, and those that become an atheist, literally have to talk themselves out of a theology. And that in and of itself is a theology. It is a view of God. We all have a perception of God, and it's the most important thing about us. All of life flows from that one thing. Your belief will determine your behavior. And it's not just your general belief, your belief about God. So everybody has a theology. We can't help it. It begins as random thoughts, but over time develops into a mindset which dictates our lives. In short, our beliefs determine our behavior. And so that foundational thought of heaven is God is good. Now, number two, we think of heaven and hell as some future existence in a place. But there is a very real sense in, in that those two worlds are vying for dominion here and now. Heaven is breaking into the now, and so is hell. In fact, scriptural theology, when we see this phrase in scripture, and John, the apostle John was the famous one for using this phrase, eternal life. Paul didn't use it much. He just approached it from a different angle, used different terms, walking in the spirit and so forth. But eternal life, that, that word eternal, of course, talked of the longevity, but the, that word life in the Greek and in Christian theology didn't talk so much about the longevity as it did the quality of life. So when we talk about eternal life, it's not just that it goes on forever. It's talking about a superior quality of life. We need to understand that, but we also need to understand that the Bible teaches that as born-again believers, we don't wait to enter into eternal life or heaven, so to speak, as some far-off event in the future. It's already breaking in now. Let me read you a couple of scriptures that will bear that out. Again, the Apostle John, John 5, verse 24. It's interesting how John was the one that picked up on these phrases from Jesus. Because they fit the message that God was wanting to bring to the world through John. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death into life. In other words, eternal life begins the moment you get saved. You've already entered into eternity. And eternity is bleeding back into time and trying to overtake your life. And here's the thing, it's not only overtaking your life now, it's not like, you know, the eternal life is breaking in and invading my present, it even invades my past, and not just my past in Christ, but it literally bleeds through and overtakes my pre-conversion life. So that now I evaluate everything I went through, even before I met him, through the lens of the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, even the tragedies of our life glisten with the glory to come. They're reinterpreted by the, the age to come. It's an amazing thing. 
You, if you have surrendered to Jesus, you've already entered into eternal life, into the age to come. It's not just coming, it's already here. So we live in this weird tension of the already and the not yet. And we're hungry for more of the already. That's why we're taught to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven. Now around here, for whatever reason, we usually use the term the kingdom of God. But those two phrases are interchangeable. Because the kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven. And it is, it is a place, but that place is invading the earth. And it's doing it through you and I. God is taking over the world one surrendered life at a time. And he is out to fully capture your heart so that heaven can invade earth and your little sphere of activity. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. Again, the Apostle John. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So eternal life is in Christ. And when you have him, you already have eternal life. And it's not something you have to wait to enjoy. It literally, you stepped into the powers of the age to come now. And we need to realize that. That we've already entered into eternal life. When scripture speaks of eternal life, this phrase, phrase denotes not only the longevity, but even more so the quality of one's existence. We have already entered the life to come. Eternal life is not some far off existence. It has already begun to invade our present. Death and life are both eternal. The emphasis of both those concepts, again, is not so much on their longevity, however, although this is definitely true, it's more so on the quality of the existence. We will all exist forever. The answer is, the, the question is, what, what will be the quality of our existence? It's the difference between life and death. And life is in the sun. And you've already entered into it. C.S. Lewis has this great book called The Great Divorce. And it's an allegory. Uh, it's, I, I've, I've touched on different parts of it over the years, read different excerpts. So I, I just ordered it last night and I was uh, listening to it this morning. And it's just a brilliant allegory. And I didn't get to the real good parts yet, but it's just fascinating the way he thinks. But it was in that book that C.S. Lewis talked about how both heaven and hell are retroactive. Think about that. That's an interesting concept. He said, at the end of our life, those that are going to heaven will look back at their life and in their final days, it's as if the, the heaven they're entering is bleeding back into their life and they look back and they say, all I've ever known is heaven. Everything has become reinterpreted by what they're entering into. And he said, those who are in their final days entering into hell look back with cynicism and everything becomes tainted by their unbelief. And they say with agony, all I've ever known is hell. Everything we go through, when we have that foundational belief that God is good, is reinterpreted. I was talking to an old friend yesterday. I haven't, we haven't really talked in 35 years and we just reconnected and... 
and uh, we got to talking about some things. And, and I was telling him, because he, he, uh, he knew, he was around when I got saved. And when I got saved in my hometown, I really got saved. And I was messed up. And, and uh, I was telling him that, you know, as you walk with God, everybody has doubts. Okay? Everybody has doubts. You either doubt yourself or you doubt God. In your walk with God, there are going to come times where it seems as though your experience contradicts what the Bible says is true about God and the Christian life. You ever been there? I don't know about you, but my life has not been all roses and, you know, uh, chocolates. Uh, There's been some hard things. And so in those times, you hit these crossroads, these challenges to your faith. And everybody hits them, everybody has them, and you will either end up doubting God at that fork in the road, or you will doubt yourself, your own interpretation of your present circumstances. It really comes down to who is Lord in your life. In those times where you say, God, but you said, and this isn't happening, and I feel like I've I've met the requirements and all these things, and Lord, I'm exercising faith, and still there's disappointment. In those moments, you are either going to doubt God and charge him with lying, or you're going to doubt your interpretation, and you're going to pull back and say, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand why this has been so painful. I don't understand this level of loss. I don't understand why this didn't hurt. This, le- this hurt and this thing didn't seem to work. But I know this, you are good. The, the phrase over the threshold of heaven, and that's not some far off thing. The way to usher heaven into your present. There's a threshold, and across the threshold is carved in granite. God is good. And if you want heaven on earth, if you want it to come to earth, if you want to live in the good of eternal life right now, you've got to continually choose to step over that line and say, God, I don't understand, but I step over the line. God is good. And I don't doubt you. I doubt my present interpretation of these circumstances. There must be something I'm missing here because I know that you can't lie. And so when I look at this, to me it seems like I could charge you with a lie, God. But I'm doubting my own interpretation. There's something I'm missing because the one thing, the bedrock of this whole thing is this. You are good. I can't charge you with being bad. So everybody has faith. They get to choose who they place it in. And the one you place your faith in is the one who is Lord over your life. And everybody has doubts. And the one whom you doubt is the one you keep at arm's length and say, I will not submit my life to your dictates and your desires. It's either going to be you (laughs) Or God in both of those places. And we get to decide what we're going to do. C.S. Lewis, in that book, he, there's another quote in there. And I haven't got to this part in the book yet. But uh, I just love this quote. He said, at the end of our life, he said, heaven is really the end of a life where a person says to God, thy will be done. And he said, hell, on the other hand, is where God finally acquiesces and says to the person, okay, then your will be done. We choose the world we create here and there. 
It's because it, it all based upon our posture. And when we arrogantly hold to our own opinions, then we choose who our Lord is. And God will honor your right to choose. And you will experience the fruit of those choices. Your belief will determine your behavior and it will create a world that you're left to live in. And the sobering thing is that world that you create with your belief is not just one that is isolated in time. Literally, we'll live in a world of our own making for eternity. So we all have doubt. We all have faith. And we get to choose where we point both of them. And it's the difference between living in heaven and hell. What a vivid picture. And many of you, have, you've, you've met people like that at the end of their life. The, the longer they live, the more bitter they've become because their unbelief, their, their, their cynicism, their charging God with, as a liar has encroached in on every facet of their life. And they're just bitter. And every, even interpreting the blessings in their life, they look at them as curses. And then you meet people who walk with God and you hear them talk and you think, man, everything's been great for their whole life because they're just so positive. And then you begin to delve into their life and you realize there's been tragedies and heartache and hurt, but that's not where they live. Matter of fact, they look back at those things and they've reinterpreted those things and they've saw how God has used them and he's worked all things for good for those who love him and serve his purposes. And they realize that God used it to become a blessing to their life. And here's the sobering thing. It's all contingent upon the posture of their heart. Amen. See, many of us, we look at other people, we, they're blessed, and we get jealous and we think, well, why do they always get blessed? When in reality, it's because the posture of their heart has actually attracted that type of activity. And we look at other people in their, their life, there's, there's cynicism, and they, they always, when you talk to them, they're always the victim. They're always the one being wronged. And in reality, the posture of their heart is invited as an attracted that type of behavior. And everything is interpreted through that lens of unbelief. This thing of being positive and being negative is really a big deal. It's not just the power of positive thinking. I've heard people use that phrase and kind of, you know, denigrate it. Oh, the power of positive. As though that's some minor thing. That is a major thing. Because it really is one of the first things out of the chute when faith is birthed. That when you really are living from that foundation, that, that, that conviction that God is good, then one of the first things that begins to happen in your life is you begin to have a positive outlook. Because everything that's happening, you're interpreting it through that lens. God is good. Oh, this bad thing. Well, I can't wait to see how God's going to turn this around. This is going to turn out for my good. This is going to be better than it was before. The, 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 the trials in your life become proof for you. Prophecies. Oh, the opposition must mean re God's really got something good. Oh, because all this stuff is happening, this means there's really some great breakthrough. Because you're looking through the eyes of faith. There's a positive posture that you live from. And it really is that foundation. The most important attribute of God is this. The goodness of God. It's not his power. It's not even his love. It's his goodness. 
Matter of fact, if God is not good, we are all in trouble. The whole phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. Let's look at that etymologically just real quick. Gospel, good news. Kingdom, king's dominion. The good news of the king's absolute dominion over the world. That's the phrase. But it's good news that this king has dominion. The only reason it would be good news that this king has absolute dominion is because this God, this king that has absolute dominion is good. And if he's not good, it's not good news. He could be all-knowing. He could be all-powerful. You know, all those things. But if he's not good, even if he was loving but he wasn't good, It'd be some twisted form of love where he would manipulate us and all that kind of stuff. The only reason it's good news that God, that God has dominion is because the God that has dominion is good. The gospel literally caves in on itself without that foundational doctrine. So God himself is the good news. He is the gospel. And the first revelation that brings us into the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God, is that revelation that he is good. And when we have that flash of revelation and we surrender our heart in that limited measure and the kingdom invades in that measure. You could put it this way, that your depth of experience of, the, of eternal life, your depth of experience of the goodness of God is contingent upon the depth of your faith. To the degree that you believe he is good is to the degree that you have the positive lenses that begin to look for the goodness of God in all of life. And to the degree that your heart is yet convinced that God is good is to the degree that you still wear a set, to some extent, shaded by negativity. And you end up playing the victim and reading all these situations as though everything's against you. And it will sabotage your worship. It'll undermine that posture of your heart. But when you have that foundation that God is good, then even hardship is seen through those lenses and you realize, oh, the enemy is opposing me. That must be because God really has something good. The enemy becomes hesitant to drop badness in your way because you interpret it as coming goodness and you worship more. You know? It's an amazing thing. It's, that, it's in that sense that our faith overcomes the world. Our conviction that God is good. And when you see people like that, some of the people that I know that have the greatest faith have gone through the hardest hardships in life. And you, you, you look, if you looked at their biography and then you looked at how they walk in the joy of the Lord, it's like there's a mystery if you don't understand faith and the goodness of God. So we've got to cultivate this thing. And to the degree that we find ourselves buying into a victim mentality, to the degree that we begin to find ourselves being cynical and questioning God and saying, God, why would you allow this to happen? You don't need to shy away from those questions. Don't deny them because I'm telling you, if you, do, if you ignore them, those seeds of unbelief will become fruit of rebellion in your life. And God is very secure in his identity. He can handle it. So we've got to confront those things and say, God, there's somewhere along the way that I've bought into a lie about you, but I'm really struggling with this circumstance. 
In actuality, those situations can become an entry point to a deeper faith, to a deeper encounter, a deeper experience. Matter of fact, it's, it's exactly those places where it seems as though life and scripture contradict. It's right, X marks the spot, you know, the treasure is where the X is. Some of the richest revelations, some of the richest treasures about who God really is, is I was going to say who God really are. Yeah. Well, he's a trinity. It, who God really is. Yeah, okay, that was an excuse for bad grammar. Who God really is is behind those seeming contradictions. And if we'll face those and ask those hard questions and say, God, I need you to rescue me in this area because I'm really struggling with you right now. Often it's the greatest revelations of who he really is and how the universe works, the cosmology and all those. There's something going on we don't understand. And if rather than get offended, we'll ask questions. It's a number of years ago, the Lord spoke to me. I was sitting on the front row and Joel Budd was preaching. And he told me, he said, many of my children live offended but refuse to ask me questions. They come up against something and they get offended and they withdraw. Rather than coming and asking me a question, God, what is this? Because it seems like this isn't right. This isn't working. And it was telling me that some of the most precious truths are behind those circumstances that if we would press in and ask him, some of the greatest revelation God wants to grant you is behind your trials in those hard circumstances. And it's really the classroom where some of the, the, the greatest qualifications in the spirit are extended to man. But most of us want to opt out of those courses. And it requires for us to go through those things and, and, and stay the course. It requires that we have that foundational conviction. God, you're good. I don't know why you're, you're allowing this, but I know it's for my good because you're good. And so I'm going to stay the course and I'm going to keep asking questions. And in actuality, those things will deepen our faith. It's very clear in scripture that your faith is deepened by your trials. A lot of people seal themselves into a shallow faith because they refuse to go beyond the trial. They'll just park it right there. I'm not going any deeper. So faith grants you access to heaven. Now we know that eternal life, you're saved by faith. We're gonna be there for eternity. But I'm not just talking about some far off time in the future. It's right now. Faith grants you access to heaven. Heaven is not merely a place, it's a state of being. Now, I know it is a place, okay? I'm not watering it down in some mystical sense that it's just a state of being, but it is a state of being. And God really does want the kingdom of heaven, what is going on there, to break in here. That state of being, that the, your enjoyment of the future now, it's supposed to break in now. So in that sense, heaven is a state of being. That is why Jesus can direct us to pray, that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that the quality of life in his kingdom would invade this one. And there's a war against those two things. We, we are born into the kingdom of this dark age, the kingdom of darkness. And we're redeemed from the kingdom of darkness. We're translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. But though 
we all have different varying degrees of our enjoyment of the kingdom of heaven based upon our faith and our pursuit of the things of the kingdom and our understanding of those things. So we're translated out of one kingdom into the other. And we're living in this tension while we're still, the kingdom of darkness is still trying to manifest in our life and hang on and there's mindsets that we're having to shed because those are avenues for the kingdom of darkness to begin to manifest in our life. And we're renewing our minds, we're pulling on heaven so the kingdom of heaven can manifest in our life. And your pursuit, your faith and your hunger are the two contingencies to determine the level of the kingdom of heaven you will, you will experience now and you will release to others. And so you've got to have that foundational conviction, but also the hunger for more. That faith gives you access to the powers of the age to come, scripture says. Literally, we can reach into heaven and pull it into earth. But it all comes down to that foundational conviction that God is good. So heaven is a kingdom, the result of a king's rule. It is his rule, his lordship in our lives. It's not some far off someday existence. It's here and now. We who believe have already entered that eternal life. We enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven now, and we do it by faith. The day we received him is the day we entered heaven. I want you to understand that. The day you had that flash of revelation that he's good and I want to surrender to the king was the day you entered heaven. You've already entered in. Again, we entered it by faith. The depth of your faith determines the degree of heaven you will presently enjoy. Let me say it again. The depth of your faith determines the degree of heaven you will presently enjoy. If you have a negative attitude about life, that is not some personality quirk. That is a diseased faith which will actually close your access to the kingdom of heaven now. I'm not saying you won't make it there in eternity, but it won't make it here through you. Your negativity or your positive attitude really does flow from your theology. Don't tell me you are a person of faith if you're always taking the victim mentality, the victim posture. If you're always wondering, why does all this stuff happen to me? That flows directly from your faith and your view of God. And this is a loving pastoral rebuke. I'm telling you that if you want heaven on earth, it starts with you having a positive view of life and the lenses through which you look and that I can't lose because I already live in heaven. I'm already living there. And any, anything health throws at me is going to be reinterpreted. And it's going to glisten with glory. And the enemy's going to wish he'd have never touched me. And when you really live that way, he will touch you less in the, the areas where you realize that. He'll find some other avenue. But you can take ground. But what is faith? It is the foundational belief that God is good, that he is therefore trustworthy, or he is therefore worthy of our trust, and the resulting surrender. 
This one thought is the threshold of heaven. This mindset transforms earth into heaven. It invites his reign. The beginning is that we are now wearing a new set of lenses. See, faith grants you some lenses that you can, we look through a glass darkly, but not everybody has the same amount of grime on their lenses. You can, you know, be scrubbing your lenses and get a greater, you can get an upgrade in your, your optical, your faith optics. You can, you can get an upgrade so that you see more and we're growing in grace. But we've got to pursue that. This mindset transforms the earth into heaven and invites God's reign. The beginning is that we are now wearing a new set of lenses. We see things that prior to that surrender we didn't see. It's like, you ever, you ever look at those books where they have the colored glasses and you don't see anything and you put them on and all of a sudden you see things? Or you ever seen the movie, uh, what was it, uh, National Treasure where uh, Nicolas Cage puts on those glasses and he's flipping the lenses up and different lenses show him different things? God wants to give you eyes of faith that other people look and they see problems. You put them on opportunities. Oh my goodness, look at this. You look at it from a different lens. Why? Because you've come from a posture. God is good. And anything that is coming my way is coming from the goodness of God. So even the hardship are gonna be translated into gold for my behalf. And so, scriptures, okay, We begin to recognize his goodness in every facet of life. Life begins to glisten with his glory. I like that. Let me say that one more time. We begin to recognize his goodness in every facet of life. Life begins to glisten with his glory. Woo! I could have church. That is not to say that everything is good. But we see the evidence of his love and care everywhere. We begin to live our lives from that new mindset and perspective. So it's not that, I'm not saying that when you live by faith, all your ducks are in a row and everything's hunky-dory. I'm just saying that as you go through the normal trials and sometimes even greater trials than the people who aren't living in faith, as you go through them, you see things differently than the people who don't wear the lenses of faith because you interpret them through the, the goodness of God. Okay, too many theological schools of thought. I saw a picture this morning. I, I set my alarm for 4.30 and uh, put my blanket over my head and I was just praying in tongues and, and typing on my phone. And as I was typing this, I saw a picture. Too many theological schools of thought are like carpenters busy with their squares, attempting to shore up the first and second floors and even the attic of their philosophical house but ignore the foundation. I saw this picture of this large house and there were all these theologians. They had these huge squares. You know what a square is? It's a, it's a metal piece that is perfectly square. And they had it up and they were trying to shore up the walls. They were in the first floor. No one was in the basement. They were on the first floor and there were guys in the second floor and they were, they were frustrated because the house is leaning and there were even guys in the attic and they were very critical and they were trying to think things through. But none of them were in the basement where everything starts, where the foundation of the goodness of God was. And if you try to find theological answers apart from that one truth, the goodness of God, I'm telling you, you'll have crooked walls in your philosophical life. 
You are going to spin off into theologies that are not biblical and will be harmful and will undermine your walk with God. So we got to start with the foundation, the goodness of God. We must examine the foundation. Are you squared up with the truth that God is good? And let me just say this. This struck me this morning. This, by the way, and some of you may disagree. You'll find out I'm right when we get to heaven. This is, this is by the way, the brilliance of the word of faith movement. Although they may be out of kilter in some upper rooms, the foundation of that entire movement is good. The simplicity of the goodness of God is the lens through which they look. And that's why they've long been champions of the blessings of God in healing and deliverance and prosperity because they view things through the lens of the goodness of God. Their basement is solid. And that, that's something for me to say that because there were a number of years where I was taught against that movement and really had, an, had, a, had a beef with that movement. And I allude to that in this next, next comment. This simplicity of that theology is an affront to the arrogant <laughs> theologian, but is actually the proper foundation to begin with. All right, point six, just so you know, we're already to six. <laughs> Okay, I know some of you were, you said one point and we're still there. Okay, number six. Perhaps the greatest indication of your faith and conversely of your unbelief is gratitude or the lack thereof. This is the reason that believers speak of this phrase, the eyes of faith, the eyes of faith. Well, the eyes of faith tell me, the eyes of faith tell me. Perhaps the greatest indication of your faith is gratitude. Because you really do look at life through the lenses of the goodness of God. So here's where I want to land it. And we're like, five minutes. This is awesome. This is God. This is a sign and a wonder. Okay, this is what Christopher was talking about this morning when he shamelessly stole my message. I forgive him, but it's been a struggle. Yeah, be thankful. Yeah. <laughs> It's always hard when they use your message against you, you know? Oh, man. I've preached myself in a corner. What can I say? Okay, here it is. Gratitude is the key to future breakthrough. I want you to... Now, think about this. Psychologically, gratitude is tied to hope. I want you to think about that. Gratitude is tied to hope. They really are the same substance pointed in two different directions. They flow from a positive perspective born of the conviction that God is good. Gratitude focuses on the good in your past. Hope expects it in your future. So let me read through that again. Psychologically, gratitude is tied to hope. Theologically, it is as well. They are both rooted in a foundational belief. They flow from a positive perspective, born of a conviction that God is good. Gratitude focuses on the good in your past. Hope expects it in the future. As you rehearse the blessings of your past, you will actually create breakthrough in your future. Your mindset invites people and circumstances. It attracts them to you. If you are a person of unbelief, 
Okay, let's, let's get away from the Christianese because we have, we tend to just kind of turn off when we hear, if you are a positive person, which is the same thing as that, by the way, if you're a positive person, you know what you'll attract? Positive people. Opportunities will be attracted to you. If you are a negative person, you know what you'll attract? Those who will agree with you. And they have a negative view of life. And rather than see possibilities and, and opportunities, they see problems. And they look at themselves as a victim. And you'll find that they will comfort you in your own victim mentality, but they ha- can't help you get out of it. You'll just find someone to pat you on the back while you both cry about how bad you got it and why everybody else gets the blessing. When in reality, you're no different than anybody else. It's your mindset that's different. Your circumstances aren't different. And so negativity demands repentance before it damns the human soul. It literally will shut the doors of heaven. Ultimately because it flows from your view of God. Heaven is a mindset and so is hell. Heaven's perspective is one that sees glory in everything. While hell's perspective is one that sees the agony in everything. Heaven looks at life through the goodness of God. Hell looks at it through the torment of selfishness. of selfishness, And it consumes all that is good and starves those we love of that goodness. Salvation begins with the glimpse of his goodness and consummates in heaven with, as everything becomes overtaken by that goodness so that he becomes the lens through which all things are seen. Backsliding, on the other hand, begins with the lie that he cannot be trusted with your surrender. If allowed to grow, this seed of unbelief will eventually choke out every good thing in your life. Heaven is the kingdom of God. Hell is the kingdom of man. And both are the result of the nature of their king. Let me say it again. Heaven is the kingdom of God. Hell is the kingdom of man. And both flow from the nature of who the king is. When you are your king... When you are your own king, you will create your own hell. When God is your king, he's already created heaven and he'll begin to invade it into your existence. Entering heaven is rooted in a revelation of God's goodness which cries, your will be done. Hell holds to the lie that God cannot be trusted to the point that God acquiesces in agreement and declares, okay, your will be done. Hell is the eternal manifestation of man's selfishness. Heaven, the eternal manifestation of God's love. We talk of the juxtaposition of the glass half full, half empty thinking, but it really does come down to those two perspectives. Okay, I'll close with this. Man, it is 12, 0, 20. Who will give me just five minutes? Five minutes, okay. You, you fell for it again. Five, 10, 15, 20. Okay. Gratitude and ingratitude are to your history what hope and despair are to your destiny. Tell you what, stand up so you know I'm going to quit, okay? Now, but hear me out. Tune in. Don't, don't, don't sign me out. Because this, this is your takeaway this morning, okay? Gratitude and ingratitude are to your history what hope and despair are to your destiny. Ingratitude cries, there's nothing good in my past. While despair bemoans, there's nothing good in my future. Psychologically and spiritually, gratitude and hope are intimately connected. 
The same mindset that appreciates the positive in your past will naturally expect the same for your future. But the negative corollary is true as well. The mindset that refuses to acknowledge the positive things that have happened to you in the past will fail to recognize any possibility of it in the future and it will breed despair. And they flow from our view of God. Both gratitude and hope as well as ingratitude and despair are mindsets as, to, as opposed to mere thoughts. Each becomes the lens through which you evaluate life. So here it is. This is where we're landing. If you practice gratitude, you will inadvertently cultivate hope. When we worship around here, it's not just because we like music. And it's not because God is insecure and needs to be validated. Scripture actually says that we magnify him. We make him bigger. He's getting really big. No, you don't make him any bigger. A magnifying glass doesn't really make something bigger. It makes it appear bigger in your sight. A magnifying glass doesn't make a bug bigger. Who would want one then? You know, I made a giant beetle. No, it's, it's going to bring it into focus so you can see it bigger. It consumes your sight. We worship him for ourselves because God loves you so much. He wants you to see his goodness so that you'll leave this place and tackle life through that lens. And when we glorify him, our gratitude for what he's done in the past actually cultivates hope for the future. So as Christopher shamelessly stole what I was going to say and said, David approached Goliath thinking about the lion and the bear. He was pulling faith from past victories to face the future opposition. If you practice gratitude, you will inadvertently cultivate hope. Put on the lenses of thankfulness. They are the key to seeing the blessings that lie in your future. Let me say it one more time. Put on the lenses of thankfulness. They are the key to seeing the blessings that lie in your future. Let's raise our hands to the Lord. All right. Father, we thank you. You are good. You are good. We declare your goodness over the republic that we live in, the United States of America. We declare your goodness, Lord. Lord, we know that the, the circumstances around us are going to cave to the, the impending blessings. And Lord, we are going to be the vehicle through which that happens. Lord, we thank you for your goodness in our life. Lord, we look back and we can truly say, all we've ever known is heaven. All we've ever known is heaven. Oh God, we love you. We thank you. And now, Lord, as we go into this week of Thanksgiving, Lord, we are thankful we live in a nation that actually sets aside a day to be grateful. And thanks also for the French benefit of food on that day. You are good. Now, Lord, I'm asking God, as we've exercised our minds on your goodness, Lord, let us go out with great hope. Let us be hopeful. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. 
If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.